Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuers Managing Editor at Global Capital. I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. I'm Edison Gong, I'm the SSA Editor. And I'm Marty Maurizio and I'm the Syndicated Loan Reporter. Each week, apart from last week when we were on holiday, we bring you the most interesting stories from around the world's capital markets. Everything you hear about today you can read about in more detail at globalcapital.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, then go and find us on any platform and subscribe. It's free, and we have a new episode out every Friday, apart from the last one. Now, it's almost a year since we first covered the gas crisis uh, on the Global Capital podcast. Back then, we focused on what an increase in demand might mean for the big energy suppliers and how they use the capital markets, um, and what rocketing prices would mean for the economy and for inflation. But since Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the picture has changed altogether. This week, with the UK government the latest to announce huge fiscal support to help the country through the energy crisis, we'll take a look at whether governments will use the bond market to fund these emergency measures, as they did during the pandemic. We'll also revisit the energy companies and others to see how they're trying to raise capital to cope with volatile and soaring energy prices. Addison, uh, tell us, what policy has the UK announced and and what does it mean for, uh, for, for government finances? So the UK announced a, a two-year price cap on um, households and the six-month equivalent um, support for businesses and some market participants estimate um, it would um, go up to $150 billion in terms of the overall size of the package. Um, and um, many details are, are still missing, as one would expect at this stage, um, but the market is focused on how this um, uh, package is going to be funded. And that follows um, other support measures, doesn't it, from uh, other European countries? Addison, what were the details there? Yeah, so um, a lot of um, other European countries actually acted uh, faster. So for Germany, for example, it already announced two rounds of uh, support measures, and those totaled uh, three, uh, 30 billion sorry, euros. Um, and then last Sunday, it presented the third package, which is bigger than the two rounds combined. It was at um, 65 billion. Um, euros. Um, and that's after Russia cut the um, Nord Stream 1, the gas supply over the weekend. And Finland and Sweden, among the Nordic countries, they also uh, um, announced some plans. Uh, Finland's plan was 10 billion and Sweden um, just over 23 billion um, euro equivalent, um, I believe. Um, some other countries also made a move. Italy um, is an interesting one because it's it is expected to have 10 to 13 billion euros in support, um, but Italy has an election coming up, so there is uh, some uncertainties over whether the new government may want to uh, be a bit more aggressive in terms of um, um, providing support or even financing. Right, okay. Uh, now, how are the uh, these governments going to fund all this? Um, yeah, I think I think we've uh, we've established in your story, Addison, haven't we, that um, Germany won't be issuing any or doesn't plan to issue any extra buns to do this. What about the other countries? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question, and there is no straight answer to that. I'm afraid、um, it's all a bit in the unknown.、Uh, for example, the UK、um, is yet to announce any details about、um, how、uh, these are going to be funded. The market is、um, actually concerned about that, and that's、uh, reflected in how the gilt market moved yesterday.、Um, the day before, actually, I checked.、Um, uh, um, everything was actually tightening, and yesterday the short end moved to,、um, I, I believe, it was seven to ten basis points、uh, wider, and the long end twelve、um, to thirteen basis points. Wider、um, throughout the day, and that re- reflected、uh, the, that nobody in the market has the answer to that, and that everybody just、um, it's pure guesswork at this、um, stage. But the hope is、um, all of the 150 billion pounds will not trans-、um, translated to extra borrowings、um, because that could be、uh, potentially damaging to、uh, market sen-、uh, market sentiment. But if the details emerge later on, that only part of that or none of that would be funded、uh, via debt, and that is a huge um, um, positive for the gilt market for sure. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, during the COVID pandemic, governments、uh, really ramped up their bond market funding.、Um, if we take the UK as an example,、um, now the UK has planned gilt sales of one hundred thirty-one and a half billion pounds this year.、Uh, if we compare that to the start of its、uh, 2020 to 2021 remit, it had planned、uh, 156.1 billion. So that was kind of at the start of the COVID pandemic. And then, as lockdowns progressed, by the November, it announced that it was planning to issue 485 and a half billion. So that's huge,、um, a huge increase. I guess the difference was then that the Bank of England was buying、uh, gilts for its、uh, quantitative easing program. So there was a lot more sort of. Demand in the market, as it were,、um, that's not really the case this time, is it? Because the, the the Bank of England is is a seller, if anything, this time round with its quantitative tightening program. What did people in the market tell you about whether or not they thought the gilt market could handle、uh, this sort of extra possible extra、uh, borrowing requirement? Yes,、yeah, so this time around, yeah, indeed, the、uh, Bank of England is trying to sell gilt at the same time alongside of the DMO. So two um, um, sources of supply already on top of、um, what the government might need to do for this、um, energy package.、Um, again, there is no simple answer to that, but I think the market is trying to. Um, take it、um, rather positively.、Um, yeah, so I think there is a bit of、uh, optimism in the market right now,、uh, if I can u- even use that word, because people、um, are hoping that if a country like the UK has weathered through the COVID nineteen.、Um, Um, problem and the、um, enlarged funding back then, and then this time around, it should have the、uh, ability to absorb the extra supply. But the question is, how much the、um, uh, how much extra is there in terms of the supply, and that is、um, unfortunately still unknown. But the market has certainly seemed to have priced in a certain amount um, of um, the 150 billion pounds、um, in support that's going to come through、uh, in the debt form. It's just a question of how much, and 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 also、um, whether that. That that will be short term, medium medium term,、um, or long term, and how's the、um, format is going to be? So there is a lot of、uh, question mark um, um, in the area.、Right、yeah,、now. I mean, I, I think I think the cynical answer would be all government debt is long term. In fact, it's sort of perpetual, isn't it? Because、uh, does it ever really get paid、yeah. back? An、uh, interesting point,、um, Addison, is the effect on inflation, isn't it? Because、um, You know, although this is a vast amount of government spending, and and you know some sort of purist economists, in a way, argue that that's inflationary.、Um, they they it's actually directly、uh, to cap prices, and that that could bring down、uh, 
the sort of reported levels of of consumer price inflation, couldn't it? Um, yeah, sure. So um, enlarged spending will definitely be um, adding on to inflation, inflationary pressure. But uh, luckily, the price cap hopefully will help um, bring inflation back down. So um, and the UK is in an interesting position, um, as uh, one of the uh, my interviewees um, pointed out to me yesterday, that UK has a high amount of uh, uh, inflation-linked bonds um, outstanding compared to a lot of the other European countries, such as France or Germany. So the UK, the percentage is actually at uh, twenty. 25% versus, I believe, France was just over 10% and Germany was 4%. Um, so um, if inflation indeed, um, or the price cap indeed help with inflation, then the cost of uh, UK government's linker, uh, the inflation-linked bonds, will um, uh, hopefully fall. And then that can actually save the government some money on top of the um, actual kind of spending, which um, is estimated at 25 billion to 30 billion um, by some in the market. So that actually c- can be a huge positive for the government debt management. But on the other hand, um, as interest rates go up, which they'll have to keep doing to to try and bring inflation down, that's also going to take uh, money out of the government budget, isn't it? As uh, you know, gradually that will lead to increased uh, guilt borrowing costs. So the UK is also in a good position in that it has a lower debt um, to GDP ratio compared to the um, some of the other European governments um, at 90%, whereas France is over 110%. So the UK hopefully has a good uh, fiscal cushion to um, fund the support, even if it means um, that they have to utilize the government bond market. Uh, so one country we should have a quick chat about of course or at least in a bit more depth is Italy. Now Italy is a country that has traditionally been a heavy importer of Russian gas. It has an alarming debt to GDP ratio of over 150%. Um, it's a heavy heavy bond market user. I think it's um, by far and away one of the most active issuers in the SSA market and yet it's only announced this sort of planned support of what is it 10 to 15 billion euros or something like that something something quite small um it's also in the middle of an election um what are people saying about italy the bond markets and and the energy crisis addison Italy is interesting because it actually finalized a plan to be Russian gas independent by 2025, and they are uh, already making some progress in that. The government seems to be keen on sticking to the 5.6% budget deficit um, target, Um, and it seems like the government is um, reluctant to um, bring on um, extra borrowings, even if it means that they have to uh, fund the energy crisis. But the good thing is, um, Italy this week demonstrated it has the good uh, uh, capital market access by going out with a 6 billion euro syndication even before the election with all the uncertainties. And they managed to attract a 40 billion order book, which is frankly, quite impressive. And they did not pay uh, much of a premium over their um, existing uh, comparable bond either. Um, So yeah, but uh, I guess the question would be what the new government would do. Um, They will be elected later this um, month. um, And then whether they would take a more aggressive stance in terms of fiscal spending. Um, But I guess um, Italy, it's already has one of the highest debt to GDP ratio among the European countries at 150%. Um, So if there's more borrowing to be taken on, that's certainly a cause for concern. I guess the uh, the ECB has a part to play here, though, doesn't it? Because it came up with that, um, I can't remember the full name, but the Transmission Prevention Gizmo, uh, <laughs> which seems specifically designed to manage Italian bond spreads. So I guess, I guess 
Italy has that in its locker. Uh, Marta, as our um, our resident Italian, um, what what is the word from back home on uh, the energy crisis and whether people are demanding that the government does more to help? Well, as Arison mentioned earlier, it is really uncertain for everyone back home as well. Uh, everyone is wondering who, uh, what the next government will do, whether they will do more than this current government. The Draghi government was quite appreciated by a lot of Italians, so it was quite um, a surprise that this government fell again. Um, People do do actually ask for the government to do more, but um, as I said, it is quite uncertain like how the election will end up and what will happen afterward. Yeah. What will happen afterward, so we mm. shall see, I believe. Okay, cool. Thank you. Now let's turn to the story you've written with John um, about uh, companies uh, raising capital to sort of handle the energy crisis. Let's start with the energy companies themselves. Um What's, what's been going on there? They've, they've, they've been looking for loans left, right and centre, haven't they? Uh, and that's to do with their derivatives hedging. Energy companies have been under a lot of distress since the war in Ukraine broke up in February. So at the moment, um, as we mentioned earlier, with all the uncertainty regarding the gas supply from Russia, um, energy companies are um, requiring banks for additional financing, whether it would be through syndicated loans, through loans or through the bond market. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when energy prices reached a peak, uh, this issue came up that energy companies are actually seeking for these uh, extra loans. Um, Companies want to uh, counter this price uncertainty by raising extra liquidity. Banks are not sure whether uh, they they will be able to provide that much liquidity as they are asking for. Well, this is a strange, a strange set of circumstances. Uh, I think this would seem to the to the to the casual listener, um, because of course these are the same energy companies that have been uh, pronouncing record profits not that long ago. So why do they suddenly need um, emergency funding? Well, I think it's a mixture, and it's very diverse picture. Um, the energy sector, of course, includes lots of different activities from producing oil, gas, coal or electricity uh, at the top of the value chain to trading it, to transmitting it through pipes and wires, to supplying it to customers. And each of those has different vulnerabilities when prices change rapidly. Um, and, and what we've seen is sort of uh, waves of stress hitting different parts of the industry at different times. There are, of course, companies that, that have been absolutely fine, um, but but some others have, have found it uh, quite a distressing time. Now, we should, we should mention at this point that we're not sort of talking about uh, financial distress in its, its sort of typical meaning. It's not as if uh, companies aren't, aren't earning revenues all of a sudden, um, but rather, in particular in the case of energy suppliers, they are having uh, great demands put on them, aren't they, through uh, commodity exchanges, which are demanding large amounts of uh, cash to be posted as collateral against uh, fl- energy prices that fluctuate fluctuate greatly. Um, how are they using the capital markets to to cope with that? Well, I think yeah, it's it's in fact even companies that are, that have been very prudent and hedged. Uh, a lot using derivatives 
are finding that, that, that they have immediate demands for cash, even though their business is fundamentally profitable. And, and after all, th- this whole problem is caused by energy being in high demand. And if you're a, an industry that supplies energy, that, that's basically good for you. But, but if you've hedged in, in a certain way, for example, selling power forward, which a lot of the energy suppliers and producers do in order to guarantee the, the level of revenue that they're going to have uh, for the next two or three years, then uh, those contracts now are what's called out of the money because if they had to be replaced, um, the the prices that, that have been agreed are, are far below the current market prices. And in that situation, the the exchanges where futures on electricity, for example, are traded, demand that the counterparty puts in a lot of cash um, and they will only accept cash, not not any other form of uh, guarantee, such as a bank letter of credit. So so where do the, where do the capital markets come in? Um, is this something that a revolving credit facility can solve or uh, does does it need to be a term loan? Um, what are the banks doing? Yeah, exactly. So so basically, the the if you're a company in this position, um, you may have enough liquidity on your balance sheet already, and some of them do. They some of these companies, especially the big ones, keep large amounts of cash and uh, backup liquidity facilities of various kinds. But there are definitely players which have had to had to seek emergency extra loans, and um, that's because they don't want to dip into all the liquidity they have that could have implications for their credit ratings for example so so they've been going to banks and and sort of demanding uh or you know asking for for extra loans some of these are negotiated as bilateral facilities just between one bank and and one company um others are are more syndicated um and you know typically they're revolving facilities because the, the in, you know inherently the demand for this cash is is variable you know it, it can change day to day so you know you ideally don't want to have to you know just draw a lot of money and then and then just hold it um you know for a long period yeah, especially if the price changes are moving yeah. so quickly. Yeah. Now, what about the other side of the energy supply chain, or the other end of the energy supply chain? There will be big corporate users of energy, won't there? Now, have they have they hedged their risk, or are uh, companies that have not hedged their their risk in terms of not buying energy forward are they are they now suffering? What what have what have they been telling us this week? Yeah. So companies that rely heavily on energy, perhaps. Um, chemical companies and industrial companies, they've been definitely hit by the energy crisis as well. Uh, They've decided to, many of them have decided to turn to uh, new markets for funding, uh, perhaps given uh, also the the highly volatile uh, bond market at the moment. Yeah, um, that's that's always the sort of, DCM and uh, corporate treasurer's mantra, isn't it, to to diversify into new sources of funding for for times just like this. Now, what sort of what sort of markets have they been raising funding from? So we've been seeing quite a lot of companies turning to the shoeshine market. It's quite a um, niche market uh, coming from Germany. Um, this market implies we can we can describe it as a um, um, sort of like a mixture between the bond and the loan market, and this mm. market implies uh, quite strong uh, 
relationships between the banks and the and the companies. So the companies have seen more flexibility turning to these markets and which has been described as like a safe haven for some of them. Um, we've been seeing quite a lot of industrial companies uh, debuting in the Shulshine market at the moment in the last uh, few months. So this could be uh, possibly a good alternative. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the Shulshine market, just to, just to recap for our, any of our listeners who aren't, aren't Shulshine aficionados, um, it's, it's a very old market that exists in Germany that's sort of something like a cross between a loan and a bond. Um, and, and it's always been a very sort of small uh, domestic market for German companies taking money from, I guess, you know, German banks and German savings banks, um, for, well, for years. And just before the pandemic, it um, expanded internationally and all sorts of uh, uh, companies went there because it permitted sort of light documentation and uh, and, and all the rest of it. Um, but then during the pandemic, the the pace at which you can execute a shawl shine, that being weeks, uh, proved to be a lot longer than what it took to issue a bond. Um, and And also the bond market was underpinned by central bank buying from the ECB, so yields were yields were good too, and it meant that the Shulchan market sort of fell quite quiet, certainly in terms of international financing. So it's interesting that it's taken this this crisis to uh, send companies back to that market and uh, take an interest once again. Yes, it is a very interesting contrast. In fact, I think the internationalization of the Shulchan market goes back further than that. But it but it's certainly true that during the um, pandemic, with sort of massive government support. Um, the it it did it, it was sort of somewhat in the shade, and you know companies could get companies that are big enough to issue bonds that is could get attractive funding easily in the bond market, but but it, there's been a notable trend this year, um, g- going back to even to January, of companies finding that the Shulchan market pricing was just better, because the you know as the bond market got volatile the Shulchan market just didn't follow suit in the mm. same way and um you know it started with uh, property companies such as Venovia which did a big uh, Shulchan it, it, its first large deal of the kind uh, back in January and uh, you know others have followed including ArcelorMittal which is a uh, you know steel maker and uh, Marty you wrote about two chemical issues this week didn't you yeah, exactly. And what's interesting, turning to your point, the point that you made about the internationalization of the Shulshine market, is that both companies, Brentag first, who already signed the deal, and uh, Covestro, who's um, who's arranging the, the Shulshine deal at the moment, um, they both release some of the tranches in dollars. Yeah, which I think demonstrates uh, how international lenders are actually getting interested into these markets yes for some years there there have been international banks particularly chinese and taiwanese in fact that have that have invested in the shulchan market but the the emergence of more dollar tranches is is an interesting development and i think if it continues it's still quite small but if it continues it could be another string to the shulchan market's bow um and and an attractive aspect for uh, european companies um, it, rather in the way that the U.S. private placement market, which is dollar based, um, has has attracted more issuers by being able to offer funding in sterling, for example, or, or euros. Um, and, um, you know, that especially current uh, companies of medium size that need a sort of 
variety of currencies, they can find this quite flexible and attractive. But it hasn't all been about bond market stress and energy prices this week, has it, Ralph? You took some time out to talk to Nomura, uh, one of one of the major investment banks, particularly in the public sector bond market, about how they run their bond market operation. And they've made some interesting changes, haven't they? Yeah, they have. Um, now, Nomura is not necessarily a sort of top five, top three house in, in any particular market. Um, certainly outside of Japan, uh, but it does have a long-standing and well-respected uh, bunch of people running its uh, DCM and syndicate operations. And uh, its head of EMEA and Asia X Japan syndicate, Nick Dent, was uh, kind enough to talk to me about how they run their their credit syndicate in particular. Now, they have um, a, a, like you say, they have a public sector syndicate operation uh, that's run very much along the sort of classical lines uh where the sort of dcm and syndicate function is sort of somewhat somewhat blended uh nick nick described it to me as uh that a public sector syndicate official is basically like a dcm officer with the ability to take risk and that's that's a a model that works across the street really um but it's in its credit business that namira has done something different um and it's done it's done that's done a couple of things uh, that are different and by credit, I should say we're we're particularly talking about uh, financial institution bonds and uh, emerging markets, as well as the bit of sort of corporate corporate bond issuance that uh, Namira gets involved in, which isn't much. Um, what they've done is they have taken back uh, trading of new issues onto the syndicate desk, which is interestingly is something that I did when I was on the syndicate desk at Namira, and it was unusual then. And that's of course about a hundred years ago. Um, <laughs> But what well, is what is done that's really impressive or really different is it's it's taken over contact with the sales force. Sorry, it's contact with investors directly. Um, I, I don't think they they would use these words, but in effect, cutting out the salespeople that manage those accounts, and that really is quite revolutionary. Well, I'd question Ralph whether whether it's actually revolutionary because I think syndicate desks do talk to investors. Don't they? But 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 it's clear that Nomura has sort of restructured their syndicate desk. They had a a, a staff gap, didn't they? When they they needed to kind of reshuffle it and hire new people, and they've taken the opportunity to to build the new team in it in a specific way, haven't they? Well, I think I think the first point is to mention that. I am an editor and I, I never knowingly undersell a story, John. So um, <laughs> I, I'm going to stick to revolution. I, I, I think you have a, you make a good point. I, I now probably anecdotally, I've heard of, uh, I think piece, like it's probably you have piecemeal examples of uh, people on the primary bond desk. So uh, syndicate officials speaking to investors directly here and there. Um, but what's different here is uh as you say, Nimura had a chance to sort of restructure its whole syndicate desk and uh, build a wish list of what it wanted. And what it's doing now is it systematically covers investors directly from the desk, I guess, as far as it relates to new issues. They're obviously not, you know, going to start sort of doing all the secondary trading or hedging or, you know, whatever else these these investors do outside of the primary bond business. Uh, but they they do go to them directly uh, to cover them for, um, you know, things relating to, to new issues. And 
the way Nimura explained it to me was this this gave them a much sort of quicker turnaround when it came to making uh, decisions about what what risk positions the de- the desk took on uh, and it does that obviously now if it has someone managing the sort of trading risk um, the sort of exit risk of taking on a new issue position and it has someone dealing with uh, execution of the new issue itself, so dealing with that execution risk, and it has someone uh, talking to the investors, uh, then it then it really has it can really sort of concentrate information on the desk altogether and make a decision perhaps much more quickly than were it to rely on uh, the sales desk, the 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 sort of trade secondary trading uh, desk as well. Basically, those parts of the bank that work the other side of a Chinese wall uh, in the public markets versus the sort of private side where schemes for new issues are hatched. And I think that's really what it's what it's done. And I thought it was particularly interesting because now that uh, there's not so much central bank support for markets, the markets are much more volatile anyway, we're seeing um, that deals are much more tricky to execute in the primary market and you can't really spend an awful lot of time doing it um so it was it was interesting that this sort of structure seems to permit quicker decision making yes um i think the one of the things nick dent said in in your interview was that he he thought it would be interesting to see if there could be if there would be a sort of revival of hard underwriting of in the credit markets i.e banks actually sort of guaranteeing to clients that they would um, get them the bond they wanted um, and then taking the risk themselves. But he didn't actually go as far as to say how much Nomura was uh, increasing its appetite to do that, did it? No, no, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he wasn't sort of drawn on the on the specifics of that. I suppose these things, you know, they vary, very deal by deal. They're very day to day. And that it has as much to do with what uh, the syndicate desk can persuade the sort of credit and risk control officers within a bank to allow it to do and that must change um you know fairly frequently in markets like these that are whipsawing around so much yes presumably even with this new structure namura will still have to seek approval for risk positions yeah no doubt no doubt um i, I i'm sure it will but uh, i guess the the point uh that Nick was keen to make was that it's it's only one desk now seeking that approval. Yes, it's, it's not him yeah. having to trawl around half the bank, endless compliance departments, and uh, and also you know negotiate um, an appropriate exit price for the secondary trading desk, as well as hang around waiting for feedback from from a from a sales force that you know sometimes frankly might have, think it has better things to do. Yeah, um, I think this is something that that does vary a lot between banks. I mean, already in the corporate bond market, you know, well, always, um, you know, different banks have very different uh, appetites for for underwriting and taking risk. And, you know, uh, bankers will tell you that this or that bank is particularly aggressive or, or sort of able and flexible to 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 underwrite in different types of deals. And um, and, you know, it can be a very a useful strand to a to a debt capital markets operation can't it because uh you know you you can just capture deals uh, uh away from other banks absolutely yeah exactly if you know let's say all banks were the same and had to get all these different approvals and agreements within the bank that i was talking about before well you know you'd imagine that namura is now or banks that do similar things to namura will be at a natural advantage to be able to give 
issuer clients a quicker response and a quicker commitment. Um, and that's got to be useful in a market where we, we're constantly told by bankers and issuers that you know they can't really dally when it comes to execution. They can't have a mandate hanging around for ages. You know They need to get in and out of the market as quickly as possible. And so it really is all about sort of speed and certainty of execution. And um, you know, perhaps this is a way that uh, Nomura has found to provide that and, and maybe other banks will think to do the same. Yeah. And, and interestingly, though, I mean, it also comes uh, against a, a background of, of of greater risk in execution with, you know, uh, Nick Dent was also talking about, um, you know, the increase in deals being pulled from the market, mm. wasn't it? And mm. i.e. launched and then not completed. And, um, you know, so perhaps banks might be willing to take more risk, but it's but it's in a riskier market, too, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. We've, we, you know, I think there was a spell, was it the end of June where we even saw, and I think this has come up in the interview where um, there were even two pool deals in a week in the SSA market. And that's, that's pretty much unprecedented as far as I, mm. as far as my memory goes back. Um, but equally, it's interesting because he also said that, you know, some of the shame of pulling a deal has gone. Um, yeah. And, and that's probably right. That, that said, you don't want to have to pull a deal unnecessarily. So, mm. you know, anything that can be done to guarantee getting in and out of the market quickly um, will be a desirable thing to be able to show to issuers, I think, and uh, desirable for the market in general, because no one likes to see a pulled deal. It does nothing for anyone's confidence. Of course, another another thing, um, another reason why banks might be willing to take a bit of risk is that um, the uh, volumes are down. Um, particularly on the corporate side, I mean, uh, and emerging markets, of course, even worse. But yeah. um, you know, the c- corporate bond volume is is substantially lower this year uh, in Europe, and um, you know, it, it, people are feeling it in their budgets, and you know, they're not going to make as much money as they've told their bosses they would, and um, so so any scraps of business they can lay their hands on are, are, are very welcome. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, uh, yeah, definitely a scrap for whatever business can be brought to the market uh, this year. Um, uh, it's interesting to point out, too, that this is not, Nomura hasn't set up this structure to respond to how markets are this year. Mm. It set up this credit syndicate structure a couple of years ago. And uh, I think, not to put words in Nick's mouth, but I, I think, you know, he would argue that uh, it's it's done that and now it's sort of reaping the benefits of having put that structure in place because it it seems well suited to markets of this sort. Yeah, and he did actually say that they part of the thought process was that they expected markets to get more difficult because they knew quantitative easing was going to end, and uh, you know that that's been borne out. Yeah, he wasn't wrong, was he? No. follow how the energy crisis plays out in the capital markets from the government to the corporate bond markets and the loan markets don't forget to look at globalcapital.com to follow all of our coverage there as the as the situation develops and of course you can follow it on this podcast too Um, available on any platform podcast if you're choosing just search for us with their new episode out every week and it's free 
Uh, we very much look forward to having you on board. Uh, it only remains for me to thank John, Marta and Addison for joining me to record this edition of the GC podcast and to thank Gerald Hayes, our producer, for putting it all together. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with more from the Capital Markets next week. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.